0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, an intern at Grace Church. Come on in and grab a seat. Grab your Bibles. If you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, James comes at the end of the New Testament. Go past 1 Corinthians, go past Timothys, and come to the book of James. Short book, New Testament. We're in a series called Pure Religion. And we get the title of that series, we're just kind of going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph in the Bible. We, We get that from James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows, orphans and widows, in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so we are in a series talking about true and pure religion. What does that look like? And today we're looking at James chapter 5, 1 through 6. Craig mentioned a couple of weeks ago that one of the beauties of expository preaching is you end up preaching texts that if given the opportunity to pick a text, you wouldn't necessarily have chosen that because James 5, 1 through 6 is not a feel-good text. Uh, In fact, I haven't heard very many messages in my life uh, from James chapter 5, um, and, and when, I, when I this week kind of went to the prep time of James one, 5, 1 through 6, I, I began to scratch my head going, wow, this really isn't a feel-good message. But the interesting thing about the Word of God is what it says about itself, that it's profitable for teaching and for reproof. And Psalm 19 says it revives the soul. And I have experienced this week a profitable effect on my heart. A reviving effect on my heart as I've gone through James 5, 1 through 6. And I I trust that that same reviving effect is going to happen for you this morning. I want to alert you to some temptations as we approach this text, even before I read it. We live in one of the most skeptical, cynical ages, probably of modern times. Cynicism is the air that we breathe. It's the air that our kids breathe, the air that teenagers currently breathe. Paul Miller, in his book, The Praying Life, describes it this way Cynicism is the air we breathe, and it's suffocating our hearts. Cynicism is when you're just filled with doubt. And we live in a world, in a land, in a day in which doubt and not truth is celebrated. In fact, authenticity is often just an expression of whether or not you've come to the reality of how doubtful that you are. And so, doubt is lifted up and celebrated rather than truth. And the temptation of a cynic, and you might have come here today and you are a cynic and you are a skeptic. You might come here and you're agnostic. The temptation, if you're that way or if you feel drawn in that direction, is to come to a text like James 5, 1 through 6 and do a couple of things. Either check out and say, I just don't believe it, so I'm just not going to listen. I'm going to invite you not to check out. I'm going to ask you to resist that temptation if that's you this morning. Don't check out. Don't don't resist the language and the wording of this text that we're going to look at today. Don't do that. Or you might say, I'm not going to check out, but I'm going to do something virtuous. And I'm just going to look for principles and hidden meaning behind the text. And I'm going to just kind of create my own Jesus seminar and demythologize the text to where it's, it's more attractive to my life. Rather than letting the shocking effects of this text jar you like it's supposed to jar you this morning. And, and you could be tempted this morning to, to take a listen to this and cut the nerve. Of what it's supposed to do in your own heart. My parents aren't here in this service, they were here in the earlier service. And one thing that my mom would do in the mornings as a teenager, I was a lazy teenager. When she told me to wake up and get out of bed and get ready for school, if I didn't do it by about the second time, sometimes she'd come into my room with a, a glass of water and she'd pour it on me. And it would be a wake-up call for sure. I'd be I'd be awake. And she wasn't overly concerned if that would hurt my feelings. I was a lazy teenager and you to get out of bed. And so she would, she would send water on my face as a, a wake-up call. Wake up, get out of bed, and get moving. And that's what James intends with chapter 5, 1 through 6, with the rich. So I want us to read it and pray, and then we'll get going. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and you've murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Father, it is our heart prayer This morning, that the effect of this word would bring about reviving life to our souls that can so quickly be drawn away to the world and to the riches of the world and the promises and the deceitfulness of riches and of wealth and of garments and of more. That we could live in a culture, Lord. And just be amalgamized into the culture rather than being a voice of the gospel and a voice of freedom from the culture and to the culture. And so, Father, we ask for your reviving effect by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be doers of your word. Help us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save save our souls and to set us free. So, Father, we ask... In Jesus' name, in your good name, that you would do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have two burdens this morning. It's kind of going to sound the same because it's for two different people in the room. Because I'm aware as we read this text that you might hear this and you might not be a believer and you might not be a follower of Jesus Christ. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been living off the faith of your parents or living off the faith of your grandparents. Or maybe you have some understanding about Jesus And maybe you've made a decision in the past about Jesus, but you don't live by faith in Jesus. So maybe you are an unbeliever. The Bible would say, if that's you, if you're not living by faith day by day in Jesus, then you are an unbeliever. You don't believe in the promises of who Jesus is for you. You'd be a non-Christian. My prayer for you, if that's you, is that you would see the glory of the world as foolishness this morning. And that you would take action. That you wouldn't just see it, but you would actually respond to it. You wouldn't just be a hearer of the word, but you'd be a doer of the word and you would take action. That would be James's heart. That'd be the Lord's heart this morning. Don't just see it. Take action. If that's you and draw near and trust in Jesus Christ for the very first time. That's called faith. Trust in him as you hear him and sense him drawing near to you. And if you are a Christian, the similar burden, interestingly, is that as you're hearing James five, one through six, as the Lord is speaking to you, that you would see the glory of the world as foolishness, whether you are a person of great means or whether you are a person who is simply trying to make it from paycheck to paycheck or paycheck to non paycheck to non paycheck to paycheck and struggling with the riches of the world and the the pleasures that you see the world around you experiencing, or maybe that you even see of other Christians experiencing, that you're not presently experiencing, and the struggle in your heart to have faith and trust in Jesus in that context, that you would see the glory of the world as passing away and as utter foolishness, and that you would see yourself in Christ as one of the wealthiest persons or people on the planet. And that you also would take action. That you would set about a trajectory. That you would get alone with God. And that's what we're going to do at the the close of this. Is that we're going to sing. And we're going to get alone before the Lord. And ask him what new things that we need to do. In order to take action on this and to draw near and trust in Jesus and in the riches of him rather than the riches of the world. So similar burden, two different people run from the riches of the world to the riches of Jesus. Run from the riches of the world to the riches of Jesus. And if you don't find yourself running somehow, you don't feel that at the end of the text, I'm going to ask you to do that. Not with physically with your legs, but in your heart that you would run away from the Promises that the world offers, and you would run to Jesus literally that you would put the gas pedal all the way to the floorboard of your soul and trust in Him, maybe like you've never trusted before. So, how we're going to do this message today is I'm just going to give you the the structure in the form of questions. Meditation in the Bible is really just asking the Bible questions, and we're going to meditate together on what this means. Four questions that's the structure. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. Four four questions. Number one, who are the rich? Who are they? Who's James speaking to? Who's he speaking about? Number two, what's going to happen to the rich? What miseries will come to the rich? Number three, why are the rich under such judgment? What in the world is going on? And number four, what does this mean to us? Right here today. 2010 how can we avoid such awful judgment so let's look at verse 1 who are the rich come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you now it's this is odd language it's odd language in a greco-roman world where this is written as a circular letter to be passed out among Christians and to be read aloud Because riches in that world were to be pursued with as much vigor and much life and strategy as as it is today. It's odd in that culture and it's odd in this culture. Where every opportunity comes at us daily like a tsunami of how we can get rich as quick as we can. And we can have the title of being rich. And so you could almost even read this, this passage and go, okay, come now, you rich, and almost anticipate blessing, opportunity, freedom, less obligation, less worries. And he actually says the exact opposite. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. In, in other words, you need to respond appropriately so what's going to happen to you? In other words, he, he has in mind that the rich are fools. Demise is coming to them. Poverty is coming upon them. Miseries are coming upon them. And they're utterly foolish because they don't weep and howl presently about what is so certain and so quick to come. It's like they've, they've drunk the poison. And they don't even understand that the poison is just a matter of time before it takes its effect. And James is saying, it's in your bloodstream. And you need to weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In other words, fool. Foolish man, foolish woman, foolish teenager. Why would you... Run after something that is so quickly going to fade away. So that's a clue as to what he's talking about when he says the rich. Foolish. Proud. But we we know more in chapter 2, verse 6, about what he's speaking about. When he says, you have dishonored the poor man. He's warning Christians about how they receive wealthy into their congregation. And according to this text, it seems as though in chapter 2, wealthy people are coming into the congregation. And there's the temptation to create a contrast and to favor the wealthy. And he says, actually, generally speaking, what happens with wealth oftentimes is that they, people step on the backs of the poor and those are who are in poverty have no compassion for them in order to gain all that they can as quick as they can. And he says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name? By which you are called. So the clue here is that they're dragging Christians into court, they're oppressing Christians, and they're blaspheming the honorable name by which you're called. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which have been kept back which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's the mighty God of the Old Testament. James employing language, prophetic language from the Old Testament. The same language that, that's used in the Old Testament describe the Lord, this Lord of glory from chapter 2. He's saying this is all been heard by, it's entered into the ears of this Lord of hosts, this Lord of glory. And it says harvesters. And it says laborers who mowed your field. So it seems like he's speaking about day laborers who have not been given what they deserve. And they've been oppressed. And they've had no recourse. They've had no ability to, to make justice for themselves and to get uh, to get paid and to get what they've earned. And the, the wealthy landowners who seem to be non-Christians have been been doing this for, for, for a long time. And here the, the day laborers have nothing to do, they have nothing to, to, to save themselves from those who are oppressing them. So here's an understanding a little bit about who the rich are. Proud, oppressing, unbelieving, no love for God, no, no love for people, and Christians are suffering under this effect. And this is just odd language, rich. I May mean, I can remember a time in my life when I wanted to be rich and do everything that I could to possibly be rich. I had no understanding that there could possibly be such warnings in the Bible that your heart could gravitate to wealth. Nobody ever at least in this season of my life I think I was a teenager when I was really pursuing wealth, nobody ever warned me about the poison on the other side of wealth. Nobody ever does that with wealth, do they? Nobody ever says, you know, the Jim Jones Kool-Aid that's being served up by the world as far as getting rich as quick as you can has devastating effects on the back nine. And I'm convinced that today we live in a culture that I think people will probably do anything they can possibly do to just get a million dollars. I mean, just look at the uh, look at the television shows. I mean, look Look at the reality shows on TV today. Are people, are, aren't people willing to do anything in order to get rich? And yet here's warnings. Weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. There, there's a, it's possible to amass wealth, forget about God, forget about the world. Oh yeah, maybe make a tax deduction gift at the end of the year, but largely have no heart for God, largely have no heart for the world, only to come under certain judgment. What will happen to the rich? Look at verse, verse 1 again. What will happen to them? Weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. That's what's going to happen to the wealthy. That's what's going to happen to the, to the rich in this passage. Miseries are coming upon you. And then he goes into describing what the miseries are. Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. And your gold and your silver have corroded. So a transformation takes place in some, from something that was beautiful into something that's disgusting. Something that smelled good and was tasty at one point to something that's rancid and awful that you want to actually distance yourself from. It's a tragic thing. I mean, you don't have to be a college student to understand uh, you at one point put something in the fridge that was beautiful only weeks later to pull it out and it's something that's disgusting and awful and you want to distance yourself from it. Oftentimes when that happens in our house, we don't just throw the, the item in the container away. We throw the whole container away. We've experienced these kinds of things. This is awful transformation happens. That's what happens to the rich in this passage. What they were pursuing changes on them. And how heartbreaking is that? And if that's not enough, he goes on to say it doesn't just transform It doesn't just transform from riches to rottenness. It doesn't just transform garments to moth-eaten rags. It doesn't just transform gold and silver to something corroded. It says the corrosion does something. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will then do some things. Tragedy upon tragedy, irony upon irony, the wealthy and the rich in this passage are pursuing something that they hope will bring pleasure in the future, only to their own demise it actually transforms before their very eyes into something awful, and then the corrosion becomes an evidence against them. The corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So what was once beautiful is transformed, and then this this transformed thing then becomes a vocal judgment against selfishness and self-absorption. It actually takes on a personality in a courtroom and begins to speak out against the greedy and against the, the rich and the unbeliever in this passage. It actually speaks out against this person. And to make matters worse, not only does it condemn this person who is, Amassed wealth and done everything they could to to live for money, but it actually turns on them and attacks them. Look at this: your gold and your silver corroded. The corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. What the most horrible irony of this passage is: what people pursue to bring happiness ends up pursuing them to bring misery. They would have never pursued these things. If they had known that it was going to turn on them like this, suddenly a transformation happens, and what they were pursuing, and then it speaks out against them in the last days, and that's what it, this is—a a reference to the coming day of the Lord, a day in which Christians long for, a day in which Christians uh, speed the coming of through the spreading of the gospel, a, a day in which Christ returns and He rights every wrong and He makes every uh, crooked path straight, and yet this day of the Lord is misery. For the people in this passage. For he comes. And he calls. Them into account. And all the stuff. That they've acquired. And pursued all their life. Turns on them threefold. Until it attacks. Them. Now we see glimpses. And shadows. Of this kind of thing. Happen in our everyday life. What you were pursuing when you were pursuing the flat and sexy stomach was not bulimia. But your pursuit of it suddenly became a corrosion that became, became a, an attacker on your mind. And you were never wanting that. You never pursued that. You never went after that. You just wanted the, the attractiveness. You just wanted to look beautiful. I never wanted the collection agency calling me. I just wanted the boat. I didn't want the, was it planning on that kind of corrosion attacking me? I just wanted the dream house. I didn't, I didn't want the money pit. You ever, you ever feel, felt that way? You got captivated by something and then you were captive to it. And suddenly you just wanted to get out of the web. And you never bargained for that thing. This is the glimpse of the the corrosion attacking. It it starts now and, and it's God's mercy that we experience at times. The corrosion that attacks us because of our own idolatry. God will allow that to happen in order to wake us up. I wanted just a look. Just one little satisfying look. I didn't expect to be addicted to porn. But what was once just a look, then becomes an addiction, and becomes corrosion, begins attacking us. And these things are just glimpses of one future day, a day of judgment in which the corrosion and the miseries which come upon the unbeliever multiplies a thousand fold and never ends for all of eternity. There's a future consuming that far surpasses the present consuming that we experience at times. And this consuming looks like fire and revelation is described like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence, earth and sky fled away. the lake of fire, same language James uses in chapter 5, verse 3. The evidence consumes us, eats at you like fire. This is the second death, Revelation says. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Fire oftentimes in the New Testament is depicting judgment. Judgment upon those who are unbelievers, those who have no faith in God and have no love for people. Do you remember the story in Exodus when Moses comes down from the mountain? Do you remember the judgment that happened? So quickly, so quickly the people turned from the God who had delivered them from so much to cast their goal, to get their goal together and create a calf. Do you remember the judgment that God makes them do with that calf? The Bible says he made them burn it with fire and to ground it into powder and they scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Your corrosion that just looked like investments, just looked like fun and play. Becomes an evidence against them, and consumes the flesh like fire. These miseries never end, so if you're you 're kind of new to the church you 're kind of getting a glimpse of how we understand the Bible. The Bible employs language and metaphor and hyperbole and literary agents. But there is meaning behind and there is meaning to the text. And the evangelical Christian understanding of ultimate judgment is one of eternal misery. You might be hearing my voice today and you're, you're resisting that. God can't possibly hold me accountable in an everlasting way. He can't possibly... Let me experience misery upon misery forever. And you need to know that your crimes, sins, against the holy God, are infinite crimes. Against infinite beauty and infinite purity and infinite love. And the only way for your infinite crimes to be removed from you is the infinite goodness of another to cover your infinite crimes. And believers in Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus' good work. On the cross. And in his resurrection. Covers the multitude. Of our infinite, our, our infinite crimes. Against the holy God. And we celebrate the goodness and the love. Of Jesus Christ. Because we've been set free. From such miseries. Jesus says. If you're caught up in the pursuit of wealth, and pursuit of the world. Do everything you can to disentangle yourself from the world. He says it like this. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, you know the language, cut it off. He's not speaking literally there, but he's saying deal radically with sin. Don't play with it. Some of you are playing with sin. Don't play with it. Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into his language, not mine, eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes. i got two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Why would you choose misery? It's because you are fooled by your own foolish and darkened heart, that you would choose such misery. Don't be fooled. If you feel the Spirit of the Lord or sense the Spirit of the Lord saying, that's foolishness and the riches of of Jesus' glory is far better than that, you need to trust in Jesus and don't resist the Lord this morning. He's far superior in value to the riches of the world. So why are the rich under such judgment? This gives us a better clue even to who the rich are. Well, it says that in verse 3, you have, talking about the rich, laid up treasure in the last days. In other words... They are utterly wasteful with the resources and what God has given to them. Have you ever found yourself in a place like that where you've discovered I have tons of resources and opportunity in front of me and I just lay it aside and I push it aside? Well, this ultimately happens when you are an unbeliever and the rich here do it uh, multiple times, all the time. They're given to laying it up and moving it away from the possibility of what it could serve it could be leveraged for compassion it could be leveraged for ministry it could be a loving thing to have resources and they don't do any of that they lay it up they're wasteful this kind of reminds you of a parable of what Jesus says when he's told the parable of the land of the rich man that produced plentiful he tells the story the man thought to himself what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. He has this aha moment. Which is utter foolishness. I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax and eat and drink and be merry. It's like a man creating a palace in the middle of Haiti right now. And says, I'm just going to kick back and relax. Or, it's like a person creating a palace in Frisco with knowledge of need in places like Chile and Haiti. And saying, I'm going to kick back and relax, eat, drink, and be merry, and do nothing. Do you remember what Jesus says, that God says to the fool? Well, I just gave it away. God said to him, fool, translation, stupid. I hope that's okay, I'm not allowed to say stupid. Stupid the s word in our house fool this night your soul is required of you and the things that you prepared Whose will they be so is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards god that's the problem they're not rich towards god they have no faith in christ and they have no love for people and they're not rich towards god they might make a a, a contribution here and there enough to make appearances good, but they aren't lavish with their wealth and with their resources towards God and to the advancement of God's love for people and pure religion, which is seeking to care for the widow and to the orphan. Not only are they wasteful, they're fraudulent. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields Which have been kept back by which you have kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, actually hears the cries of the harvesters as they they have been denied wealth and been relegated to a life of poverty. And extreme poverty is soul-destroying. And God is going to hold those people accountable for their soul-destroying and murderous work upon those who are in poverty. They have stolen from these people. It's utter fraud. The day laborers have worked hard and the greedy rich are not paying them. There's nobody that can help enforce justice. James says this Lord of hosts is going to enforce justice one day. Look what else. They're self-indulgent. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That's what they choose to do with their money. I have tons of opportunities, tons of responsibility, and yet I'm going to choose more padding and more for me and more for my children or whatever, whatever the justification is, it's just more this direction. Arrows pointed this direction, not arrows pointed that way. And they're, they're greedy to the point of murder. You've lived luxuriously, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, James says the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Would you be so foolish to just amass wealth for yourself? And all you're doing is creating a day of slaughter for yourself. If you were to interview a steer and say, do you like the hay? Do you like the warm and, and comfortable conditions? If, if a steer could think, he might say, yes. But not if he was wise enough to know that he's in, uh, uh, in line to be butchered. And that's what he's saying here. The, the rich are utter fools. They're going to be slaughtered on a day of reckoning. When the Lord returns... And they're going to be utterly taken away. And the mis- the, their wealth is going to be utterly taken away. And then misery upon misery heaped upon them. And selfishness and self-indulgence never ending. Frozen in this state of hate for God and unlove for people. And selfishness and self-absorption never ending for all of eternity. 1 Timothy 6 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, it's also a great opportunity if you have it. But it can be the root of all kinds of evil, this love for money. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Very possible. You think that's possible in this culture? Do you think it's possible to fall in love with wealth and affluence and wander away from the faith. I believe it's happening every day. Do you think it happens every day? You ever felt your heart long for the world to wander away from the attractiveness of Jesus because the world is so much more attractive? What does this mean for us? How can we avoid this judgment? Here's the first thing I want to say. You need to become a brother. Look at verse 7 of chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Do you notice the contrast? Verse 1 of chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Notice verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brothers. He's saying that there is a a certain destiny for those who are brothers. And it involves repentance. James 4 talks about that. He calls brothers, you can be an adulterous brother for a season of your life, and, and he calls for repentance in James chapter 4, but there is a whole nother destiny for those who are brothers. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers. Look at verse 16, chapter 1. My beloved brothers. Brothers are beloved by God. Look at verse 1, chapter 2. My brothers show no partiality as you hold the the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers? So over and over again, James uses the word brothers in communicating to Christians. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, You rich. And he doesn't call the rich to repentance. It's supposed to be encouraging to those Christians who are suffering under the rich and a warning for those who are tempted towards riches. And if you're tempted towards riches... My encouragement this morning is not that you would just weep and howl, but that you would turn to the Lord in repentance. And what you need to have happen to you is not to do good things. You might be tempted to say, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll start being compassionate. You know, I'll start caring for the widow and I'll start caring for the orphan and I'll create a list of... And I'll I'll get alone by myself. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. Create a list of things that I'm supposed to do. And I'll do good. And I'll escape judgment. If you do that, you're not going to escape judgment. You don't need to do good first. You need to become good. You need to become good. How do I become good? Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Verse 1, my brothers, okay, who are the brothers? Here's a clue how you become good. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold, what's the word? The what? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. If you have faith, not just about Jesus you, in a cerebral place, understand things about Jesus? No. I'm talking about faith in Jesus in his perfect work, his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection, and who he is, and faith in him as a person. Faith in Jesus. If you have that, there's a tons of places in the New Testament I can take you to that would show that when that happens, the righteousness and the goodness of God is credited to your account and you become good. Whether your actions line up with that new identity at this point or not, it will slowly, surely, steadily, because he puts his spirit in us to make us good. But you need to become good by declaration. And the way that you become good is by faith in Jesus Christ. You need to have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have faith in Jesus, I'm not talking about one-time decision. I'm talking about right now, faith in Jesus Christ. Not a one-time decision. I, I had a prayer of faith 10 years ago. No, I live a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus declares you and has declared you guiltless and good. You have the goodness of Jesus on your life and you become good. Now act good. So if you're an unbeliever, you need to trust Jesus. If you trust Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus will declare you good and he'll put his spirit in you and you'll begin to act Good, and that's the next part. What do I do with this text if I am a Christian? Answer, act like you are. Be what you are. Act like a brother. You're a sister. You're a brother in Christ. God is your father, and Christ is your brother. And the Spirit lives in you. And so act like a brother. So one thing that we can do to act like brothers and sisters if we have found that we have faith in Christ, is to thank God, literally. Just to stop and celebrate and be worshipful. Uh, don't, don't let this uh, pass, pass you by. I mean, we can, we can just kind of take it for granted that we have faith in Jesus, that we've been born again, that we've been adopted into God's family. And USA Today says that Plano is one of the affluent cities in the United States. And if you come to love Christ by faith. More than you love this world. You did not arrive at that conclusion. On your own wherewithal. And your own ability. James 1.18 says how it happened. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's what Jesus did. He broke the chains off of you. He brought you forth by the word of truth. Jesus did that. And you need to thank him for it. We're going to have an opportunity to sing and thank him for that. Secondly, repent where the world has become more attractive to you than Jesus. Now, this applies to everybody in the room. Where's the world gaining an attractive place in your heart? Don't mess around with that. You need to repent of that. You need to turn from that. 2 Corinthians 11 says our thoughts can be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You think your thoughts can't be led astray in this culture from a pure and a sincere devotion to Christ? You know that your thoughts can be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to the degree that you could be a saved brother and sister and forever Rejoice in that and yet come to this very day that is utter misery for unbelievers and suffer loss because you've wasted your life. Paul says each one's work will become evident for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done and if the work that anyone has built on the foundation which is Christ, Jesus, survives he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up He'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Wow, it's possible, possible to waste the opportunity of wealth and resources. I mean, have you made foolish choices this month, this year, the past 10 years, because you were deceived by money? Have you failed to love others? Or are you currently struggling with loving others because you despise their lack of wealth? You just find yourself not attractive to them because of their social standing. You have an economic prejudice. Or even despised others and been jealous of what they have. Maybe even other Christians. Maybe even Christians in your care group. Have you viewed money as something just to attain and get as much of as you possibly can, or as an opportunity for mission? Pure religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So pure religion is. It's being set free from money and to love the world. Thirdly. We need to warn each other. You can do this negatively by telling somebody, you know what, I think maybe, just maybe, in a loving, gentle way, I think you might be trapped by the deceitfulness of riches because you seem to love this more than you love Jesus. And that can literally be anything. (laughs) Could be a boat, could be a television show, could be a relationship, could be anything. Anything, anything. And you might need to lovingly come around somebody that's close to you. So you might need to start making a new resolve to attend care group. You can't love people like that without being a part of their life. Or you can even say it in a freeing, even in a different positive way. You can say, you know, brother and sister, you know that you're free from that. You know Jesus took the chains off of you from that and you're an heir of all things. You do realize that you're one of the wealthiest people in the world? Though lowly now, James 1 says the lowly brother should boast now in his future exaltation. There's coming a day when you'll be exalted because of your faith and trust in Jesus. Now, in the hard times of economic challenge, one day. It'll all be reversed. Jesus is going to reverse the effects of the fall. Every effect of the fall. Here's, the, here's lastly, here's how we're ending. We warn the world around us. Now just imagine this. Imagine the numbers of people in this city, a city of about 100,000. And that's just Frisco. We're not talking about North Dallas. Hundreds of thousands of people in North Dallas. Imagine the numbers of people right now in this city today who are suffering from the deceit of riches in one of the most affluent cities in the country. Do we know anybody struggling and fooled by the deceitfulness of riches? I think they're all around us. I think I'm looking at people with spheres of influences everywhere. You might be a mom and you've still got influence all around you. Do you think there's anybody in that sphere that are struggling under the deceitfulness of riches? Absolutely. Imagine what would happen in a church that is centered, in the center of that city. So we've got an opportunity in front of us with Frisco Square, one of the most affluent cities, okay, one of the most wealthiest cities. Imagine the opportunity, imagine the responsibility of a city smack dab in the center of that affluence and in the center of that wealth To set people free from the deceitfulness of riches and to get on board with a new and a glorious and a freeing religion, which is the only true religion, which is Christianity and following Jesus. Imagine what could happen in our church. Imagine what could happen in your care group. Imagine what could happen with the relationships right here, right among us. Imagine what kinds of new ministries Things like church planting and things like mercy giving and justice bringing could develop over time, over the next year, over the next three years, over the next five years, the next ten years in one of the most affluential cultures. Unless you would be tempted in this moment to say that would be great for some leaders, and you might even have in mind, well that would be good for that person, or that good if the pastor could do that, and the character leader could do that, so and so's Got some influence there. No, imagine how God wants to use you to bring freedom to people in this city. Caught up, needing rescue from the deceitfulness of wealth and riches. Imagine how God wants to use you to tell somebody the good news of verse 6. James 5, 6. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. James says he does not resist you. Now, he's speaking generally about the the Christians who have been under oppression. But you know the imagery here that's supposed to come to mind is the righteous one who was condemned and who was murdered and who did not resist such oppression against himself in order to reverse the oppression in our lives that we deserve. He did that to set us free from our moral poverty, in our sinful poverty, in order to make us wealthy beyond our wildest imaginations with his righteousness. For you know the grace, and I hope you know the grace. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. And that's what we are. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that this text provides us to Just let your spirit do a little bit of evaluating of our hearts and our priorities. We recognize, Lord, this morning that we are maybe not as strong as we think that we are many times. We probably have numbers of places in our lives where we think maybe the grass is greener on the other side of wealth. ask that you would set that kind of thinking in us free. That you would change that thinking in us, Lord. Lord, I ask in this quiet moment that where we have had opportunity with wealth and with job and with career and with vocation and we're not leveraging all of the opportunities in front of us to display the gospel and to glorify you with where you've placed us, with the responsibilities that you've given us, with the opportunities laid out in front of us, that we would repent of that. And as we repent, the shackles of unbelief would just fall off all around this room. you would bring in by your spirit, new joy, new life, new excitement about the future, new understanding of who we are in you, the wealthiest in the world. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.